have you heard of the paradox that uh, <laughs> that sent a thousand ships? No, but that that was the start of type theory. Mm, probably not. Me neither. Or rather, I have, but but I forgot the name of it. <laughs> so, um, let's see. Uh, Russell's paradox, and the idea is um, that. Uh, oh, God! Reading this from Wikipedia is something. Yeah. Let's go. Let's see if we can understand this. According to the unrestricted comprehension principle, for any sufficiently well-defined property, there is the set of all and only the objects that have that property. Okay. Mm. Let R be the set of all sets that are not members of themselves. So, that's something. If R is not a member of itself, then its definition entails that it is a member of itself. If it is a member of itself, then it is not a member of itself, since it is the set of all sets that are not members of themselves. The resulting contradiction is Russell's paradox. In symbols, and then you get very nice mathematical symbols. So I'm getting this, like, if you want a, a good, nice, quotable paradox, you have to do something like, uh, organizations tend to ship their org chart or whatever <laughs> uh, <laughs> see th that probably perfectly scratches someone's itch but it's not mine <laughs> yeah that's that's always the issue when we start talking about these more theoretical things uh, i get all fired up by them and you go me oh uh, but but try me like let's let's push into to types i have been working more with types in recent months you have due to elm ah um, yes you and have some of some of the time i i don't hate it cool what's the least hateable parts of elm so i think overall i actually like elm mm -hmm. overall uh the issue is probably with this particular code base i think someone uh in the past overcomplicated things and uh I'm getting to deal with that. Yeah. So when you overcomplicate things and you have static and strict typing, is it st strict or is it static? I guess it's static typing. It's static. Yeah. Okay. We can talk about strict and loose also, but in Elm's case, you have both strict and static. Uh, we should yeah. never talk about strong types. Okay. No, because then people get upset. Yep. Um, yeah, but when you start overcomplicating things with strict and static typing, you get a lot of types. Yes. Uh, and that becomes... So for me, that starts to become the same overhead that I see in sort of an enterprise code base where uh, in OOP where you have your interfaces and you have your implementations and you have your uh, uh, different sort of heritages and then you have your data transfer objects and your models and your da da da. Yeah. There's like a lot of things that are almost the same thing but not the same thing because yeah. reasons and so much ceremony yeah there and elm doesn't have to have a lot of ceremony because i've seen other parts of that code base so i one issue is i probably just dove headfirst into the most complex parts <laughs> <laughs> because that's where i needed to change things yeah uh, the persistence layer and communicating out of elm combined with sort of the most uh, intricate and fiddly part of the entire domain of the application yeah but that's so that part got complicated but then i've been working in sort of more isolated parts where the state and so this is sort of a component based elm approach um, so each component has very little state uh, and it's strictly defined and there are events that can be triggered and those are coming as messages and then you update the state uh, 
And Elm re-renders that, and the rendering is done with a very simple view function. All of that is quite nice. And the strictness does mean that once you get it, once you make enough changes that it will compile, because the moment you add something, it stops compiling. Yeah. Um, and it gives you nice errors. And then you keep just adding the missing things, and suddenly you have something that compiles, and it's very likely that it also works, which is cool. Um, and I think that's a function of sort of Elm being a very niche language. It's very focused on doing just web, like web rendering. And it has this strict and static typing, which in this sort of constrained environment can do really cool things. And there it doesn't sort of bother me so much that I I need to follow this strictness. But generally I... I don't feel the sort of desire to move this to my backend in the way that some people seem to. Why not? But you like this <laughs> type of typing, right? I do. Uh, it helps me. It uh, saves me lots of time, uh, even though it doesn't seem so always. But the idea is if I can see, if I can just change something... And then I get the type checker to tell me, you need to also change these things, or you missed something, or something like that. Uh, then that saves me lots and lots of time. Um, it also lets me refactor fearlessly. Or maybe, as Chris Keithley would put it, change code fearlessly. Um, because I doubt that I always preserve the semantics when I refactor. Yeah, the black box semantics. So that's why I like types. It they serve as a uh, security harness, hängslen och livrem in Swedish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tautological S- safety. Suspenders and a belt. Yes, there's an English saying for that too. Very nice. Um, and there are English words for it. I guess it is a saying, though. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Um, and um, so if I do something in Python or Elixir or JavaScript, then I will have to write a test to get the same guarantees. But when I do something in Haskell, and this is the important part, I actually use the type system to model the things, uh, then I get some guarantees about what, I, what I've just done. And that it will keep being nice in that way. Uh, so if I, for instance, have a record and I add a field to it, uh, then the type checker will tell me all the places I should also have added a field to it. Yeah. Or added a, added that data into the record. So also, this is a, a um, tangent, but uh, I'm at a new job now. Yeah. Uh, it's very nice. Everyone is happy and we're doing something important. And uh, that feels great. And uh, we have a database which is a document store and it doesn't have a schema. Yeah. And one of the most useful things in database-driven applications I found is the schema. (laughs) (laughs) Because then I can read what is the domain model. Schema, schema. Yeah. Come on. Sure. Uh, Uh, From reading Designing Data Intensive Applications, your application certainly does have a schema, but it doesn't live in the database. (laughs) Indeed. It's it's spread over many lines of code. Yeah. So types are useful there too. Yeah. So that's... Actually, that touches on, on something where I find that I like types the most is where you can apply it in a constrained space. Yep. And I don't find typical like uh, web service backends to be a good constrained space. Like if I was writing Elm and I needed to do the Elm thing of sort of, oh, now we're 
diving into unsafe territory now i need to pass now i need to do a bunch of ceremony to sort of detach myself from all the guarantees because i'm going to talk to the outside world yep if i needed to do that in my back and i believe i would go insane why <laughs> because like sure you can design so that uh, and you probably should design so that most of those sort of outside world concerns are at the very edgy edge of your application and everything else is well-defined inside. But there's so much assorted cruft that any application deals with that I'd rather not be that strict about in my eyes. It's like, yeah, we get some data in we only care about these parts we deal with that we pass it on and like i'm more interested in failures as a runtime concern i'm not i don't know that i think a type system would help me i think it would slow me down immensely i think you would be correct for a while <laughs> and then it would give you a speed boost yeah maybe or or this could be one of those things where it matters most how well it maps to the way you think could be too yeah i'm sure like apparently i can learn to work with these types of type systems i'm working fine with elm right now yep so i should probably try these uh try some kind of backend uh, language that is a bit stricter in this way just because it would be a good sort of brain exercise and moving out of my comforts. I know that you can build much more powerful tooling with strict and strong types. Yep. And like the, if you do Elixir, the type discussion comes up a lot. That's interesting. And I'm, I'm at the point of like, but I've never wanted types in Elixir. I've never wanted more of that. So for me, it's like, yeah, it's dynamic. That's great for me. That's what I'm used to. It's what I, I like. And I haven't missed what the people asking for types claim that I'm missing. Yeah. Which means it works for me. Um, doesn't mean it's, it's the, correct, <laughs> the correctest thing. But. Indeed, but it's the most important for you. And subjectiveness is uh, important in this case. Yeah, I think like one of the the challenges whenever you discuss whether something like, oh, but we need types because types are better for sort of correctness or quality or from what I understand, there's not a lot of evidence that that's the case. There haven't been done that much research into it. No, I, I bet there has has been some, and from what I understand, it's like, yeah, inconclusive. It doesn't seem to matter that much. Yep. And probably because other concerns are so much more important to sort of uh, quality software, software yep. quality. I don't think I don't think types are important there. I think types are important to people. Yeah. Such as like, uh, I think it's a values thing. Yep. I don't value types, so I don't want necessarily want types. It just seems like more work to me. But to someone who likes to work in a type-driven fashion, of course, that's just missing. Yep. Uh, I think we can reach the same point in quality space um, in many different ways. Uh, there have been extremely there have been software of extremely high quality written in fourth fourth is one of few languages without types at all huh. it doesn't do types it only do does uh bytes or some other primitive hmm. i'll probably be wrong here but some prim primitive that's very close to the metal uh and satellite control systems have been written in it control systems that are run on the satellites and they keep working so uh, meanwhile uh, other things have 
uh, other code has been written for probably aircraft uh, and rockets which uh, where they have used formal methods where they prove that everything works using some kind of proof system and then generate the code and that has also worked perfectly fine so uh, there are two extremes to be less extreme uh, we can see that if we write enough tests in a language like python we can get quite good confidence that our code will work uh, until uh, some <laughs> Some user finds a way to make it not work, of course. Those damn users. Those damn users. <laughs> the world would be so much better without them. But do you feel like uh, if you don't have types, you need to write a more tests? Yes. Do you feel like if you have types that you don't have to write tests? No, but I write them in another way. When I have types, I usually use property-based testing after the fact. Uh, so I set up, so I write my code using Ofen, what the author of Idris, Edwin, Edwin Brady. He calls it type-driven development, where you just put all the types you think you need uh, model the problem domain by using types, writing the functions that you think you need, but only t the type signatures, not the body of the functions. The body of the function is just undefined, or what could you say in some other language? Race in Python and Elixir, I think. Race unimplemented. Hmm. And uh, when the type checker is happy, I can fill in uh, the body bodies of the functions and then I usually write some property-based tests some properties that I think should hold for this problem and or for this code and then I start uh, looking into how I could generate some reasonable data for this because it's usually generating interesting data that is the hard part in property-based testing. Yeah. And writing the properties, it's for some reason much harder to say that for all inputs of this kind, uh, these properties should hold. Instead of there exists a test or a... Uh, <laughs> this, when the stars are right, this holds. Uh, which is the more uh, example-based testing or unit test way of writing things. Mm. But if you want to do this, like I'm guessing if you want to do this for a backend, you'd probably use something like Haskell. Yeah. So if you're building a backend in Haskell, most web applications that I've dealt with have had a lot of parts that I would say and I would expect Haskell to consider sort of the dirty outside world uh, where they they talk to a database, they talk to an external service and in between those things there's a bit of glue sort of oh we're pulling data from the external service, we're sh formatting it in a particular way and then we're shoving it into the database we're reading data from the database, we're pulling that out, we're formatting it, we're shoving it down the wire to the client. Yep. There's usually not that much code in the uh, that isn't dealing with talking to the outside world. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's the code that isn't talking to the outside world that's interesting to model in a type system. Uh, if you can model your domain or business logic uh, using the type system and using a, a model that seems to cover all cases or at least the cases you're interested in uh, then you won a lot I think yeah yeah maybe as long as it doesn't take much much longer uh, which I I'm a little bit concerned that it could be or I guess I don't really believe that it would necessarily take much longer 
But something I do feel like it tends to lead to is a lot more code. In the beginning, yes. What I've seen when I've done Haskell programming, I have, to be perfectly honest, I have never done Haskell programming professionally. Yeah, production and that scale, etc. But yeah, all that. Uh, but I do have some some code that's online and doing it, its thing and working surprisingly well. Uh, and when I've done uh, Haskell programming, and this also holds true for PureScript and probably Elm too, it usually starts with lots of code, and then it becomes less and less code over time when I get a better idea of what I actually need to write of on how I should uh, model the problem in code. Uh, yeah, so as you're getting more proficient, you're building tighter solutions. Yeah. But I'm guessing the whole code base typically does not shrink. It does. Okay. Uh, it actually does. Um, so that's interesting. And then you could, of course, ask yourself, it's, would this happen in a professional context where there are deadlines and uh, the business value isn't in how beauty the, beautiful the code is? Yeah, and there's five people making thing, building things at the same time. Yeah, uh, and I don't know, probably not. Because I definitely see a certain beauty in, in it conceptually. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, I think that kind of functional programming, that pure and strict type has a little bit of the same type of reputation as people telling telling others they should use Arch. Yeah. Because it's just better. <laughs> and then the Arch people get one-upped by the Nix people. Yeah. Because it's just better. Yep. So you should be using this. Yep. Uh, and the C people get bothered by the Rust people because it's just better. <laughs> Indeed. And there, I think there's an element of that where, because it has this certain elegance and purity and like, it's a beautiful system in some ways. Yep. Very satisfying once you feel like you grasp it and could apply it. Yeah. You want to put it everywhere and you feel like it's, it is the best thing, which... For for many people, that's not what they want to be told by other people. Like, no, you should be doing X instead. Um, and I think that sort of, it becomes sort of a, a self-defeating thing with, with these languages. And I definitely know I have my, my defenses a little bit up, which when someone starts to suggest these types of type systems. Yeah. And that's not super useful on my end nah but i do also hear very often that something i like and really enjoy and that i think would actually not benefit immensely from having an additional type system should absolutely have a type system and it's essentially uh, useless because it doesn't it's like yeah that's <laughs> that's not true <laughs> so i agree yeah I would love to be able to track. I, you know, I have gripes with um, daytimes without time zones. Mm, yeah. So I would love to be able to track them in whatever language I'm writing at the moment, but otherwise, I'm not. I'm not sad that Python doesn't have more of a type system than it has, and the same is holds true for elixir too yeah and elixir at least has a distinct a very clear distinction between naive and uh, proper date type times yes it's actually in the type system that's not true for python that's just a property in in uh, the date time object i think yeah so this is i mean it's a struct so it's in the standard library but it's not I don't know what you consider what you'd consider a primitive type in the language. I don't think it's necessarily one of those. Well, it's a struct. I don't know. It's a type. It's a struct. 
Yeah. I I uh, have a tendency to put equal signs between them, and there are probably purists out there that <laughs> don't agree with me at all. Yeah, that's fine. There is the Gleam language, which is which does bring sort of this stricter approach to the Beam, which is the Erlang VM, uh, which Elixir uses. I believe Gleam is an ML. I guess I couldn't tell you. Yeah, because it looks like Elm, the syntax. Yeah, I thought it was quite similar to, yeah, to Elm. It's the same family. Okay. Uh, and uh, Haskell is like the distant cousin of that yeah. family. Yeah, and I thought after spending some time with Gleam and when uh, after spending some time with Elm and looking at Gleam, I felt like, yeah, okay, this looks manageable. It doesn't look like they made it super complex. Yeah, and if you look closer at it, like there are some some sort of trade offs. They want to they want to let you use OTP and all of that good stuff from Erlang without necessarily breaking your your type guarantees and stuff. And there wow. that means that means sort of implementing typed versions of that, which is. Uh, something they're working on, but like uh, you have escape hatches into into the dynamic world, and I think you probably need to use them if you want to do do most of the fun stuff uh, that happens at runtime in the beam. Yep. But it seems like a neat project, and if you want to introduce sort of a type strict strict and strong typed core in uh, in Elixir, I guess you could use Elm uh, use Gleam for that. Sure. Uh, but I think that just adds complexity in the end. Like, it, it's not what I would choose to do. But I'm also very happy with my dynamic things. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure it is. Gleam is the the perfect fit for the problem domain. But I guess time will tell. Yeah. It's, uh, and I haven't looked into it. It's, so. a, it's a neat project anyway. Yeah. Um, I think they're doing good stuff. Uh, there are more interesting stuff on the problem domain, like I think session types is uh, one of the more cool ones. But then we're down into type theory again, uh, where session types lets you model sending messages between actors. So oh. it's quite a good fit, um, at least from the 30,000 feet view. And then uh, when you get into it, maybe it doesn't fit at all. Uh, so that's probably worth uh, looking into. Yeah. So something that that I realized was sort of well, I guess I hadn't really thought about it from from uh, a types a types point of view before I heard heard Keith we go on about types versus elixir. Mm-hmm. at some point and that's the whole idea that yes uh, you can get a bunch of guarantees at compile time due to the type system yep uh, most type systems aren't necessarily enforced at runtime because you shouldn't be able to sort of break out of them indeed they are th- they are literally thrown away yeah both in Java and in Haskell, for instance. Yeah, and that's that's probably fine most of the time. Uh, it depends, but yeah. But what actually sort of, if you want to build resilient systems and all of that and use some of those very powerful runtime features of something like Elixir or Lang, yep. then... Uh, you're going to have a heck of a time trying to sort of uh, give any guarantees about types. And I know the Gleam handles, so they handle types at compile time, but if you're doing hot code updates, they don't even pretend that they are covering that, which I think is a fair trade-off. Yeah, it's, I think, if I recall correctly, almost no one handles hot code updates. Yeah. So, even in the Erlang and, or at least in the Elixir world. Oh, you mean actually the, uses them? Yeah. There's a fair, 
a fair chunk of people that have either tried it or are running it in production, but it's not the most common way to do it because it's a little bit more involved, but it's also very yeah. cool. It is. It is super cool. Uh, we did have, I think it's Brian Hunter that was on Beam Radio and talked about that. That was that was a good conversation, and he he was like, "Don't throw out hot code updates. It's like a superpower. <laughs> Use it." Uh, and they did a mix. Okay, was it he who had sixteen physical boxes spread out over USA? Yeah, and uh, they had an almost one hundred percent uptime. Yeah, I would imagine so. Uh, I don't remember if he uh, gave any sort of uptime numbers, but they were, they couldn't be down because it was healthcare. Yeah. And they were running the system so that it modeled every patient as a running actor. Wow. Then you don't want to let the patient crash. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think they actually ran. Uh, multiple instances of each patient essentially <laughs> on on different uh, data centers and stuff there was a, a lot of interesting stuff there uh, they didn't do graceful shutdowns when they were updating the servers because they wanted to make sure that the system handled uh, brutal shutdowns oh nice so they just removed uh, the hardware for the node essentially or they just shut down the node with no warning instead of bringing it down gracefully yeah which means that they they tried that a lot <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, punking the servers i think the episode is called due to that cool but that's probably where i'm more interested in solving problems and that's probably why why i'm not super keen on types because i don't feel like what i'm typically spending my time trying to solve is to guarantee that my code is doing the right thing exactly and that i haven't made a sort of mistake in the details of the code but rather i've seen much much more work that needs to be done with making sure the everything runs well at runtime yeah and having strong facilities for runtime is sort of, it seems like it, it's atypical for, for uh, sort of strictly strongly typed, no, strictly and statically typed <laughs> languages yes. to focus on runtime because, of course, everything is perfect once it compiles. That's not true. That's not true at all. It's just your your preconceptions. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> Both uh, Rust and Haskell have uh, very strong runtimes. Uh, they do focus on quite a bit of different things, but they are strong. Yeah, so, so Rust, I know, I mean, that tries to provide memory safety guarantees and stuff. Yes. So that by sort of definition, must be a runtime concern to some extent, I imagine. It is, but you can also model it in the type system until people open the escape hatches, of course, uh, and then it becomes much more interesting and much less safe. Uh, so, yeah. There's... Rust is also... You know I said that Haskell is a distant cousin to the ML family of languages. You did. Rust is another one of those but in another direction. Um, so it looks like a strange ML, like ML had a child with C++ or something. Uh, so. But tell me a little bit about runtime concerns in Haskell. How is that typically done? It's, hmm. Haskell has a runtime that uh, handles all the memory allocation and all that stuff. Uh, it can also do, uh, it also handles all the opening and closing of file handles and all that uh, good stuff. And you can actually run 
the runtime distributed. I don't know if how much work has been put into it in modern times, but it has been done. So that's kind of neat. Uh, I think it's called Cloud Haskell or Distributed Haskell or something. Maybe they just switched to Erlang instead. One of the bigger concerns, though, is uh, laziness. And we could joke about that most of the code is never run because the runtime is so lazy. And I suppose that would be fun. But the main concern there is that things are not really evaluated. They are just kept around. So the heap increases in size until the process runs out of memory. Hmm. And that's kind of bad. So that's one of the, the... I think that's one of my main concerns with Haskell and, and uh, the GHC runtime right now. That... It's very hard to reason about strictness and laziness and when things will be evaluated and uh, when things just will uh, start to stack up or add up and take up all the memory. And that's <laughs> this is ironic, but that's one of few things that isn't really modeled using types. It's actually not modeled at all. You'll just have to know it. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I don't know which functions throw exceptions or not in uh, Python or yeah something. And I bet that's that's sort of a similar problem to what you can run into with Elixir or any language essentially that you can do things that will use more memory than you have. Yep. And then something else kills you. Yes. Which is very hard to model well. Yeah. And I mean, the beam goes down with that. There is a tool for, for handling that built into OTP, though. Cool. Uh, which is the heart module, which can be configured in such a way that if it detects that the application is down, it will either shout at an operator or just start it again. Yeah. Which is a so it's a process running in parallel, so outside of the Erlang application, which has the capacity to restart. Uh, it sounds like System D or Supervisor or any of those. Yeah, I mean it. It does a similar thing, but it's it's built to work with the application instead, and sort of have have an integrated sort of heartbeat, I guess, with that. Cool. But yeah, like when your entire process is killed by the operating system, I don't think there are many languages that handle that gracefully. No, but but I would love to have something that I don't know, maybe more tooling that let me see now there's too much laziness here. You need to strict up some things or yeah, something like that. I imagine that's challenging because like from what I've understood of uh, Haskell and laziness, and like Elm has similar laziness, I think. No, I believe there's some lazy evaluation Is stuff in Elm. It huh? That's interesting. I didn't know that. I believe so. I haven't dug into it, obviously, but. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's assume <laughs> that it has some laziness. But yeah, part of what makes Haskell performant and powerful and very useful is that it that lazy evaluation i imagine yep. that it doesn't instantly do what you tell it to it does it when it's necessary exactly but if that also makes it harder to reason about that's that can be a hefty cost i i can see how that could be challenging yeah uh so I think there's more more work to be done there, and but it's still, it's still a very useful language to model ideas in, to present ideas in. It's uh, jokingly said that the motto of Haskell is uh, to avoid success at all costs, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's Simon Peyton Jones, one of the authors of Haskell, uh, who is. Uh, who said that? And um, I think Haskell has failed at that. 
it's at least slightly successful. Yeah, it's run at some of the world's largest banks, at Facebook, at um, other places, and it also has an uh, important part in some of the smart contracts on. I don't know if it's on Ethereum or what uh, blockchain it is. But so I'm planning my next blog post. Haskell has failed. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be an amazing title. <laughs> Put it out on Hacker News. It's. <laughs> I think it will be removed for being clickbaity. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Do it anyway. Yeah, no, I'd rather not. So types, I think there's much more to talk about there. Yeah. But I'm kind of done now. <laughs> then there are, there are the languages that are trying to introduce types where no types have previously dared. Yeah. Sort of a TypeScript is probably the biggest example right now. Yeah, superset of JavaScript. Trying to bring types into JavaScript. And I haven't dealt with TypeScript at all. And I feel sort of similarly about that as I do about trying to introduce types into PHP, Python, or Elixir. I Kind of awkward? Yeah, it seems kind of awkward. And I get it. If, if, all your, if you're building a huge sort of enterprise code base in JavaScript, you're probably in trouble. Yep. And making it feel more like you're writing c sharp or something is probably helpful i haven't poked nearly enough at typescript to know how it feels yeah what i know i've been looking into it a little bit but not nearly enough but what i know is that typescript is a i would like to say a more powerful type system than c sharp has it's also structurally typed rather than nominally typed so you can have types just by the structure of the data rather than having to give it names all the time. Okay. Uh, which, so uh, uh, the nominally, nominally typed type systems are those of C++, Java, maybe C. C isn't very good with types. And C Sharp, of course. So that's one of the good parts with TypeScript. You get rid of some of the noise. On the other hand, you still have the semantics of JavaScript. I think, though, that some of the types do move over to the runtime. Uh, so they are available and can do their thing. Hmm. So that's quite nice. Yeah. And what I typically try to do is minimize the amount of JavaScript I'm writing. And if I'm writing JavaScript, it's usually like, brief tight pieces if i can yeah me too and then bringing another language in to strictify that seems like just overkill yeah yeah but i i realized like there are businesses built entirely on large javascript or typescript code bases and that's another matter entirely and it's not what i do indeed so i guess that's that sort of probably where where the most type stuff is happening right now and i think that's also what some people are suggesting should be done uh for for example elixir and i i know python has a bunch of type annotation stuff now yep php ha got its type annotation stuff php with types writes exactly like c sharp but with more dollar signs <laughs> <laughs> I did not like it. It's yeah, I haven't written PHP in a thousand years or something, but it does seem like a very unholy <laughs> combination. Yeah, and it sort of makes sense like okay, you're building your business application on PHP, there's no reason to throw out everything of of the old, but PHP is wanting to be more serious sort of yeah and move move up in in sort of recognition as, as something you can build large and reliable systems on blah 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 enterprise quality something something wow but 
that's never what I want. Like, if the pitch is like, no, but we can make it stricter and more formal and more that, that that's sort of where you lose me. I don't want it more... I don't want things to be necessarily more strict or formal. I don't think that's an advantage in itself, especially since it's not proven to help. I think building languages that are foundationally designed to work with a type system. Now that's interesting because then like pretty much uh, the way Erlang decided to be a functional programming language, but very dynamic. Mm-hmm. So they constrain their problem space when dealing with sort of concurrency, distribution, hot code updates by being immutable and shared nothing. Mm-hmm. But they also uh, eliminated needing to concern themselves overly much with sort of formality, correctness, and types, which also is part of what. El- what allowed hot code updates and their type of distribution and like made their actor model easy to use i think yep they didn't they solved some hard problems but they didn't have to solve the entire universe yeah similarly i think a language like haskell is saying okay but we want to solve this type of more formal more enforceable correctness type of system and we build that on top of functional programming types lazy evaluation and that solves a particular class of problems yep. but when i'm looking at like an oop scripting language and you introduce types i don't think you're solving a category of problems ah hmm oh i don't know about that it's when types are introduced and used uh, hmm. I think you're right. I think you're correct. I was trying to push back, but I can't. <laughs> so you could be solving a problem, but you're. It's like you're. You're introducing a maybe solution to the problem. Yeah. It's like you can opt out at any time. Uh, you have to aggressively opt in to actually have it. And it's not really suited to it. It's like I'm very skeptical of Ruby adding Ractors for actors. Yeah, it's fun though. But they, it's like, yeah, sure, try. But I don't, have, I don't think it will ever be as good as, for example, what we have on the Erlang VM. Because that's designed nah. for doing that well. Yeah, there's also an opposite here. Uh, Ruby adding Ractors that give them more functionality. It gives them, it increases the problem space a Ruby programmer can work in. Yeah, the surface area grows. Or, yeah, kind of, kind of, it makes their uh, lever? No. Aristotle has one of these and he can move the world. Whatever, it makes it longer. Yeah, that's a lever. Cool. But when you add a type system to PHP or Python or JavaScript, you actually make the number of representable programs in that language smaller. And this could be something you're after, which is why you add the type system. It could also make it much harder and less idiomatic in that context to work in that language. Uh, which you could see in, if we look at Python, for instance, which is one of my favorite languages, you can just, uh, there are very many things that implement the iterator protocol isn't the right name here, but I will use it anyway. So they can be iterated over. Yeah. But if you say that a function takes a list, which it will just iterate over instead of taking something that can be iterated, you reduce the number of uh, available um, programs this function can be used in. And that's kind of sad, I think. Yeah, you're, you're losing some composition, I guess. Yeah. Composability. Yeah, composability. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah, and like, l- let's be clear. If Elixir was like, okay, but 
in Elixir 2.3, in this future of 2050, we are adding the class. <laughs> like, I would also find that a bad idea. Yep. Like, there are plenty of solutions for doing mutability in Elixir via escape hatches, because sometimes you need that. Yes, it's very useful. But typically, you're dealing with immutability. And that is what makes the thing powerful, because that is in line with its design. And yeah, yeah, I'd be curious to, to sort of get more familiar with some of the strict and strong typing, strict and static typing. Yep. It's absolutely not strong. Must not be. <laughs> because I am very skeptical of it and it feels... I think I, I bristle at it a little bit like I bristle at too much sort of bureaucracy. Yeah. It just feels unnecessary to me and that feeling is, is hard to hard to shake but i also know that you're not a big fan of bureaucracy and complexity oh no <laughs> uh, so i think you're see i think you're seeing more of the elegance of it and uh, i'd i'd be curious to pick up sort of what more of what that can be yeah i've actually considered writing some kind of front end an elm from scratch just to feel feel what that would be like but uh, i only have so many hours in the day indeed Maybe we should do some pair programming involving some language like Elm or Haskell. Yeah, or maybe maybe we try Gleam together. Yeah. Just meet up where neither of us know the thing. <laughs> but both of us know enough to be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. But I appreciate you sort of pushing me on this and, uh, and uh, just pushing back on some of the runtime things. Because I know enough about the beam and like the runtime I I focus on, but I can only make rough assumptions about other runtimes that I don't spend time with. Uh, so that's in yeah, that's one one of the woes of being a human with opinions. <laughs> <laughs>